Your favorite PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors are right here every week on Next on the Tee. Join Chris as the greats of the game share their stories, insights and playing lessons. Now, back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now joining me here to help us continue to celebrate our 200th episode on the French Lick Resort guest line is Class A teaching professional Greg Ducharme. Let me give you a little bit of background on Greg. He is from Rexford, New York, which isn't far from Schenectady and Albany. He, uh, he graduated from Coastal Carolina University with a degree in professional golf management. He's a Class A professional teaching at the Michael Breed Golf Academy at Trump Golf Links at, at Ferry Point, which is just outside of New York City. You can hear him on Michael Breed's show, A New Breed of Golf, every morning from Monday through Friday from 8 to 10 uh, a.m. Eastern Time on Sirius XM. I listen every morning on my way to work, and I'm very excited that Greg is taking some time to join me here tonight on Next on the T. Hey, Greg, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I I, I just found out. I, I, congratulations on on your 200th show. Um, what a what an honor it is to have, to have me join you on there. So thanks for having I, me. Absolutely, thank you. So. Greg, I want to start off our time with you tonight by going back to when you were a kid, because being from that part of the country, I have to imagine there were a lot of competing sports for your attention, including hockey. Talk about growing up and uh, the different sports that you played and when golf entered your life. Absolutely. So uh, golf was a kind of a, it, and honestly, it was a thing that I wasn't very interested in. I, I had very little to even no interest in golf and the competing sport you mentioned, ice hockey. I played that from the age of five all the way until uh, I graduated high school. I was 18 years old when, when I, I hung up the gates there and I decided to go to college down in South Carolina and that was kind of a, a turning point for me. I decided hockey wasn't going to take me very far. I could play golf for a, a whole lot longer and I thought it would be um, better for me. I didn't start playing golf until I was a sophomore in high school. So I was playing ice hockey. I loved it. I was playing um, at, you know, I was playing travel hockey and God bless my parents. So we were playing 80 game seasons and that was just in the wintertime. In the summertime, I was doing camps and I was, um, playing on travel teams, just basically tournament teams. And I played for a team from New Jersey, living in Albany. That's a long way. But in the summertime, there's no practice. It was just basically we would travel to Toronto and Quebec City and all over the place, Connecticut and, um, New Hampshire and Marlboro, Mass. We were traveling all over the place for all of these hockey tournaments. And I thought golf was kind of lame. Honestly, I, I was not into it. I thought it was boring. I thought it was slow. I thought it was a sport for old men. And all of a sudden there was in the fall time, my dad and I would watch football. One of the, one of the, my favorite things to do. And every once in a while he would flip over to the golf on Sunday. And it's like, dad, it, it's football time. What are we, why are we, Flipping over to golf, and all of a sudden, this guy wearing red, uh, wearing a red shirt, and and a Nike swoosh is fist pumping, and the crowds are enormous, and there's just so many people, and everybody is going nuts, and just like so many others, um, uh, my age, Tiger Woods is the guy that brought me to the game, and all of a sudden, just just at the flip of an uh, of an instant, the wink of an eye, all of a sudden, I think I I think of golf as being a cool game. And so I, I go and I start, uh, I, I get a set of clubs. I start hitting some balls. I realize, wow, this is really difficult and I'm not very good. And I didn't like that very much. So, you know, some of my buddies who also played hockey were taking golf lessons and getting better and 
we'd go out and play and they kept beating me and that wasn't something that was going to work for me. So I took one lesson um, and I, I took one lesson and I learned grip, I learned ball position and I just, I learned a couple of basic drills on how to swing the club and, and how to transfer your weight. And it was basically two drills that I learned. I still remember them to this day. And from there, I learned how to hit a ball and I learned how to make some consistent contact and get it in the air. And really the rest is history. Now at this point, I go to work every day and, you know, I had one of our, our coworkers at the academy, Andrew Losey, he, he commented, he, uh, he said, basically what I do is I go to work in the morning and I talk about golf on a, a radio show. And then I go down to the academy and I teach other people how to play golf. And then uh, my fiance, Bridie, took a, a video of me. I was in the living room late one night just making golf swings because, and, and he saw it and said, man, you, when you get home at night, you're making, you're, you're working on your own game in the living room. And that's basically what my life has turned into from hockey all the way until now where I basically, I wake up and I go to sleep with golf on my mind and, uh, all of my activities. So it's been a, it's been a really fun ride so far. So to, to that point, right? A kid from upstate New York ends up going to coastal Carolina for professional golf management, right? Is that a, is that, yep. boy, I, just, I loved it. I fell in love with this game as a sophomore because that's only a couple of years, right? Before you're graduating and now you're going to go off and you're going to do your thing in college. Did it, did the bug yep. hit hard and, and then that was just it? Now I'm going to be a teacher of this game. How did, how did all of that transpire? It, so it hit really hard, first of all, but I have a, a friend of mine who I also played hockey with and played golf with. He kind of brought me into the game and, uh, his name's Kevin Shalansker and, Kevin, it don't, you know, you don't have to try to spell that. Don't worry. But he, he basically <laughs> said, you know, there's this thing called the PGM program at, Co- and the school is Coastal Carolina, which was in Myrtle Beach. And I had happened to vacation in Myrtle Beach every once in a while as a, as a kid growing up. So I, I was familiar with Myrtle Beach. I loved going down there. I thought it was the coolest place. Uh, so I thought it was a really good fit. And the cool thing about the, uh, the PGM program down there, which, you know, also happened to be a nice selling point to, to my mother and father was, hey, you know, when you go and do this, this isn't a singular, you're not just going down there for golf management. You end up getting a business degree. My degree was in marketing and you have a concentration in PGM. So you basically, you're going down there for a business school. All of your core classes are in our business classes and your electives are in the golf world. So one of my electives one year was uh, was food and beverage. One year, there was a, there was a swing, a, a golf swing, kind of a, a teaching course. There was a golf course architecture and design course. And these are your electives. These are things that you might take instead of, um, I don't know, some other random elective that, that you may take. They were all golf related. And I thought that was pretty cool. You got a membership to a golf course. And basically, the only, all you had to do was prove your handicap. And it's since changed. I was in, the last class of, of what's called, um, PGM 1.0, which is named 1.0 only because 2.0 came out the year after. And when 2.0 came out, you basically had to take your PAT, which is a playing ability test. You had to take that before you could start taking your book work, um, before you could start taking your test in all the individual fields that you have to go through, which I don't need to go into detail about all that. But basically when, when I got there, you had to have a golf professional sign off on the fact that you were an eight handicap or better. Um, and at the time, in those two years when I 
really first started playing, uh, which was really three summers. It was really three summers of play. I had gotten pretty good fairly fast. I, I The first year in the fall when I had with high school golf, I basically was shooting in the mid-50s for nine holes. And I was on the team. And then my next year, I was a junior, and I was still on the JV team. And I was basically shooting by that time in the low 40s. So in one year, I had kind of jumped 10 shots. Now, when you're shooting 55 for nine holes, if you improve at all, it's going to be, there are significant, you know, you improve your tee shot and you go from hitting a big slice into the woods to hitting a shot that can get into the fairway, you're going to save 10 shots fairly easily. So then I got into the low 40s and then the next year I started getting to where I could play a little bit. And I made that, this is now my third season on the golf team. I made the varsity team and now I could shoot in the, you know, around a couple over par. I wasn't shooting under par or anything, but I, I could keep it around par. And at that point, it starts getting much more difficult to improve um, because now, you know, it's not so much, well, I can't get the ball in play and I can't chip and I, I don't know how to hit certain shots. Now it's, well, how am I going to hit all these shots a little bit better? How am I going to hit them a little more consistently? Um, and so uh, it hit me hard. I got I got pretty good fairly fast. Um, and again, it was fairly easy for me. Hand-eye coordination wasn't necessarily an issue. It was, it wasn't, th- those weren't the difficult things. The, the difficult things for me were just knowing what to do, which I'm still learning today, um, which is one of the coolest parts about my job. But basically, that's kind of how this all came to be. And going down there, I had a couple of advantages. One, I love to play golf. And my, my family, my parents knew that. They they thought they supported it. They thought it was a really good thing and uh, a good thing to try with a nice backing of, hey, uh, you know, you're going down there for a business school. This isn't just purely golf. So um, so I think that was a really nice selling point for the whole thing. And, Greg, when I was doing some research on you, I found an article online written by Richie Phillips back in May of 2012. In the article, he wrote, I think Greg had a GPS device implanted in his head at birth. He just looks out there. He sets his eyes on the pin and whammo. There it goes. Is that is that one of your strengths? Do you have a good, strong feel for what the right distance is, or are you more, or is it more referring to you're an aim and shoot? There's not a whole lot of messing around and thinking about things. Select the club, set up, boom, there there the ball goes. Well, you know, back in 2012, that was a different time in my life. I, I hadn't quite started getting into. I knew I'd love to play. I knew I knew the game. I, that was kind of when I was still a hockey player and and since then i've started to as i've gotten into the teaching world i've now started working with michael breed and i started watching and learning about all these new aspects of the swing so my golf game has kind of gone through a number of phases there was the first phase around that time 2012 might have been a little bit pat you know i was starting to learn a little bit then but basically i was just being fairly athletic, a guy that loved to play and a guy that was really a, a hockey player turned golf. And I, I guess that's where it comes from. It was just kind of a, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna stand up here. I'm going to look at my target. I'm going to hit it to my target because I'm an athlete. And that's what athletes do. We hit our target. Um, and, and as I started to work with Michael and started to learn some of the techniques and the, the, the ways to improve, uh, the ways to be consistent, the ways that a swing really should be, my game sort of changed. And, and honestly, it, for the first couple of years, it went through a really rough patch because I, I was watching, I, I spent my first 
summer after college just watching Michael give every lesson. And all he, he was giving lessons to all kinds of different people. He's giving lessons to tour pros. He's giving lessons to high, you know, 25 and above handicap, complete beginners and everything in between. So when you're as young and as, um, uh, a person like, like the way that I was, I had no idea. I, I had no knowledge. I was just a complete sponge and I tried all of these things in my own game. And I quickly found out that, you know, as that article pointed out, that just look, aim, shoot kind of mentality. Well, when you start thinking about the techniques of your swing, that goes away and it goes away pretty quick. And I got to a point, I didn't really know what I was doing with my, with my game for, for a while. And it took me probably two years to come from, to, to get out of that and realize, learn how to understand, Hey, listen, just cause somebody else needs to work on this, that's different than, than my game. And it, it, that was a real learning curve for me. But back in 2012, um, that was probably after a round in an outing and, and, you know, it, they'd probably seen me play a couple of times because I, I, um, it, you know, I, it, back in high school, I played in a high school tournament that I ended up winning and, and I made a hole in one and there was some articles written about that. And it, the cool thing about the hole in one that I made was it was on the final hole of a tournament and I ended up winning the, that tournament by one shot. Um, wow. On that hole in one. And that gives you a little bit of a, a GPS sort of nickname and um it was probably a, a fluke round more than anything it's the only hole in one i've ever made it's also the only tournament that i've ever won um, and the two of them coming in in contact together the way they did was kind of a cool thing but around my hometown people kind of knew my uh my golf game based on one shot that i ever really hit and it was all that i ever really did especially in that area <laughs> At that point, and I think that's a little bit of where that nickname kind of comes, or, or that story kind of comes from. And Greg, you come from a very athletic family. Your sister Lexi is a good athlete. Talk about uh, talk about her. What a tremendous gymnast I read she is. Yeah, my my younger sister Alexa. We, everybody calls her Lexi. She was a, a gymnast similar to the way that I played hockey. She was, and think about what my parents have have gone through with myself traveling to all these hockey games as I did and my sister Alexa traveling all over the all over the place for these gymnastics meets and there's a little bit of a difference between going to a gymnastics meet to watch and going to a hockey game to watch a hockey game there's some you know there's constant motion there's excitement every 45 seconds or so a line is changing and I'm on and off the ice on and off the ice you go to watch a gymnastics meet and it probably takes six hours and Alexa is competing on there for, she, you know, she is actually on the floor or on the the bars or on a balance beam for a total of, you know, it, it might be five minutes and five minutes might be high. So you're going there cheering on the team for a very, very small amount of time to watch her compete. But what I will say about that is the amount of time and practice that they put in in between meets is incredible and i mean they're in the gym for hours upon end every day and they don't take a break and it really has a you know it it was her her gymnastics friends were always her best friends because they spent so much time together she would get out of school and and boy she would get the best she always made me look like such a bad student she would get the best grades 
and and she's in the gym way more than I'm at hockey practice. Hockey practice is an hour and a half long. She's at the gym for three hours, and she comes home and gets her homework done and gets to sleep, and she's like this perfect child. And all of a sudden, she goes off to college, and she goes to SUNY Brockport in Rochester, New York. And all of that hard work she put in and all of that skill that she developed led them to in her freshman year a national championship and so she's got a she's got a national championship ring on her finger something i do not have and will never acquire for any of my skills so she's always got the athletic leg up on me she always has she always will um and you know another thing about alexa all the, her her hard work has always paid off she um not only in athletics but in academics as well she ended up going to uh, Long Island University um, in Brooklyn for grad school after Brockport, and she got her doctorate. She's a physical therapist now, so um, very exciting for her. She's got her boards coming up in um, in October, and she's on her way to to a, a great, exciting career. Ah, good for her. That's great stuff. Yep, very exciting. So, Greg, to finish connecting the dots in your career. How do you go from Coastal Carolina to working with Michael Breed? Well, it's a great question. And what I would say is it's a lot of luck, but I think that it was uh, part of it was meant to be. This is, I've been working with Michael now for five years. And so five, I guess it was now six years ago now when we first met. I basically, I was working at a place called Arcola Country Club. Which right now is relevant because it's it's the golf course right next door to Ridgewood where they're playing the um where they're playing the Northern Trust this week, and at Arcola one of the assistants a guy by the name of Jeff Martins was um he also went to Coastal Carolina, and so I was working with Jeff and Jeff was uh was kind of showing me around the area. I'm I'm in now upstate New Jersey. I'm from upstate New York. I went to college in South Carolina. I don't really know anybody. I don't know how to get around. Jeff is is there kind of showing me around, introducing me to people, taking me to golf courses to play. He's taking great care of me. And I had, by the way, at that internship for me was one of the best golf jobs you could ever have. And just real quick, before uh, I finish this story, I I had a schedule where I would work 10 to 6. I would work 10 to 6 every day except on the, um, I had Monday off and on Sunday I would work nine to five. So if I wanted to go home somewhere, I, I got out a little bit early. It was, it was as good as it gets. So I would get up at, I would go to the range at seven o'clock in the morning. I'd hit ball, um, until 10 when I'd work and I'd basically just kind of hung out in a shop all day and, uh, quote unquote learn. And when I got done, I got out on the golf course and I played until dark. It was the best job you could have. But, um, my what I basically told Jeff is that I I want to get into teaching and teaching is really where I want to go. But at Arcola, the the junior program was was fairly small, so I had a little bit of experience with that, but it wasn't a big a really big thing. So I would spend a lot of time in the shop, and I got in trouble for this. I, I'm watching videos of tour pros uh, on the computer. I'm sitting there on the because com- the other thing is the members don't have to go into the shop there to go out and play so everyone that shows up doesn't have to go in and see you they can just kind of go see the caddy master and and head out on the course unless they want to buy something so as the intern watching the shop i had a lot of free time even on a busy day i'm just watching videos of 
Adam Scott or Tiger Wood, who know you name it, I've seen it, and and I'm just watching their videos. And so one day Jeff brings me to a place called Manhattan Woods, and he's gonna, we're going to play with another coastal grad by the name of Joe Condomitti. And Joe was at the time working for Michael as his uh, assistant. So we play, and Joe's asking me what I want to do, blah blah blah, and and Jeff's kind of telling him, that, yeah, the kid just wants to teach. And at the end of the round, Joe says to me, hey, Greg, you know, I know you want to get into teaching. I'm leaving at the end of the year. I'm going to, I'm going to Round Hill Club and, uh, and Breed's going to need another guy. You should send a resume. I said, are you kidding? Of course. So I, I send him a resume. He calls me up and says, hey, let's, uh, why don't you come to Manhattan Woods for an interview at this time on this day? And I, I meet there, I dress up in a suit and tie, go down to this interview, and I'll never forget the interview. I was, it was, first of all, a very different interview experience than anything that, um, that I've ever had, anything that I was ever told that an interview was supposed to be like. This was not a typical kind of where do you see yourself in 10 years kind of questions. These were personal, deep questions. And the take from it was he wants to know what kind of person I am, not what kind of, golf pro I am, which is wise on his part because he knows that, hey, I'm just an intern. I don't know. I don't know anything. I'm basically getting this job to learn more. So I'm in the suit and tie and Michael is asking me questions and he's hitting some balls. I'm sitting in a, a rocking chair out on the rain and the sun is right in my eye. He's hitting right into the sun and I'm just staring into the sun. I can't I can't really see. So I'm answering these questions and I have tears rolling down my face because of the sunlight. I'm trying to block it out. Any, anyway, I get through it and I was all, I was nervous because I, I thought, man, you know, I, I, I'm squinting. He probably, he's wondering, he's probably wondering what's wrong with me. I, I can't see. I'm crying. <laughs> it, it was a, a mess, but he calls me a couple weeks later, says, Hey, Greg, um, if you want the job's yours. And here we are today, five years later. And I, I have the great fortune of, of being involved in his radio show, A New Breed of Golf. Um, get to talk about golf every morning, get to basically the, the hard work that I get to do when I, I go in. I got to do my, my research. I got to do my homework. I'm, I'm researching tour pros, statistics and all, everything, everything you can imagine in, in the world of golf. And, and then I get to talk about it on the air. Uh, and then I get to go help help um, help my students improve their game. So it, it couldn't be better. And Greg, like I mentioned at the top of the show, I listen to you and Michael every morning on my way to work, and and I love the show. And the best part of of the show to me, not only is just the golf knowledge and that sort of thing, but it, it's how upbeat and positive you guys are. So much of what we hear on yep. sports talk radio is ranting and raving and yelling, and I love that you guys are not that. And we try to do that as well here on this show. Plus I do a show on the football side, Thursday night tailgate. And, and we, you know, we, we try to do the same thing there. We don't try to rant and rave and talk about all the negative things that happen. We, we do a spotlight on the positive segment. So we, we try to be positive as well. And I, and I think that's such a, a huge credit to the two of you for keeping it that way. Talk about why that's so important to both you and Michael. Well, it, you know, Basically, that we're we're two coaches, and and that's basically our our um that's that's where what our our bloodline is. That's where we come from. And when you're a coach, 
the the negative things aren't really going to do you any good. And a lot of this, for, and for me personally, um, Michael, aside on this, this comes from my mother. My, and my mother is a is a, a woman who believes that you're with your mind you can control anything. And and basically, what what you ask for, you receive. So if you are out there saying, well, you know, this is going to be a terrible day. I I this. This part of my day is, is going to stink. I, I don't want to do this. I don't I don't want to do this. It, well, it's going to turn out being a, a really bad day. And whatever it is that you have to do that day is not going to end up being uh, a very positive experience. But if you go into the day and you say, you know, for instance, I got to do I got to do laundry today. If you go into laundry saying this is going to stink, I hate doing laundry. I can't believe I have to fold this. Then when you're doing it, it's going to stink. But if you go in there and you say, listen, I'm going to have the cleanest clothes and my I'm going to smell so good tomorrow. I'm going to smell better than anybody else the next day. And I can't wait to have my new fresh soft sheets to sleep in tonight. And if you get excited about that, well, it's going to change your entire experience. It's going to change the, the way that you look at it possibly quite possibly your entire day. And definitely the one moment when you're, when you're doing the, the task that it is, you don't want to do. So there, and in golf, it's, same way. So when you're when you're coaching golf, if you say, for instance, I'll give you a, a, a little story here. Mo- most students, when they come in and, and they work on a new technique or a new move in their swing, they say, well, you know, that feels weird. And we don't let our students say that's weird because weird is really, it's a bad word. You won't, if you, if you say, hey, try this new food, it's really weird. Um, you've never had it before. It's really weird, but you'll like it. Well, you're not going to want to try that. I don't want to try anything weird. But if you say, hey, I got this great new uh, pasta sauce you can try. It's really different. You've never tasted anything like it. Try it. You're going to say, oh, okay, I'll try something different. Different is good, but weird is bad. So they really mean the same. It's kind of the same thing. It's But what we tell our students is, hey, listen, it, you're here for different. And if you're doing the same thing, if what you're doing is not different, well, then it's not better. And the line is that we, we use this all the, I use this with almost every first time student that I ever have. And it, it's, well, better isn't, well, different isn't always better. Better is always different because the same can't be better. So by definition, if it's different, well, it's got a chance. It's at least got a chance to be better. And if you're taking a lesson, you're trying to get better. Well, Doing the same thing just isn't going to work. It's not going to get anything done. So you basically, you take a a sentiment like doing something different, and you can look at it one of two ways. One, it's different, which means it's going to be, has a chance to be better. The other way to look at it is, hey, this is weird. And if you look at it as weird, then you don't want to do it, and you don't want any part of it, and it's not going to be successful, and you're not going to try weird. And certainly when that student leaves, the lesson tee and they go to practice on their own, if they think of that it, with the perspective in their mind of, hey, this is weird, well, they're they're not going to do it anymore. They're going to go right back to their old way. They are going to have wasted money and I am not going to have made that student better. I, I know I, I haven't helped them, which is the whole purpose of doing what I do is to help people. So the, the perspective in my profession and Michael's profession um, is incredibly important, incredibly important. Um, and to focus on the negatives, in my opinion, is just, a, it's a, simply a waste of time. And focusing on the positives is something that can, um, uplift your day. It can change your day and the, those around you 
it can change their day too. That's great stuff. Couldn't agree more, Greg. Just a couple more before we let you go. And one of the topics that you and Michael have been talking about over the last several days is the idea that tour players should get paid even if they don't make the cut. And I know Michael's big on figuring out a way, how can we divvy up this purse so the guys get paid for the time that they're spending in the pro-ams or in the clinics that they might put on, help to put on, you know, prior to the tournament. And they're entertaining the crowd at least for Thursday and Friday if they don't happen to make the cut. Give me your thought. What are your thoughts on that topic? Well, I, you know, there there are certain things on the show that you'll hear that I don't necessarily always agree with Michael, and sometimes I can express that on the show, and there are sometimes where I may not have a, a real case in my mind. It doesn't feel right, but I don't know exactly why I, I may disagree. But this, so the moral of the story here is we're not always, it's not 100% that we, the two of us are, are in the same line of thinking. There are times where we disagree. But this is one of those cases where I couldn't agree more. And, and honestly, we were talking about doing a great debate on it. And he said, well, the, can you take the other side? And I said, Michael, I don't think I can. I can't find a reason why these guys are not getting paid. To me, it's, it's, um, it's very unfair. Um, and, and they're basically going out there and they're, they're entertaining people, players for two, two rounds. They're playing for two rounds. And on Thursday and on Friday, you basically have, well, you have a full field, right? So that's one thing. So you, because they're in the field, they've extended the day of viewing golf. And that means that there's more concession sales. That means there's probably more ticket sales. Some people on a Thursday might only be able to make it for the afternoon or for the morning. And if you cut the field in, if you had no cut, for instance, and the field was instead of being 140 players, it was only 70 players. Well, now that day is cut in half. And certain people aren't going to be able to go watch. So all of the sales that happen in the PGA Tour are, are now limited. And those players contribute to that. Now, here's the other thing to me that's such a big thing. It, it's the thing, the, the, uh, con- the, how do I say this? The, the people that disagree, the, the biggest one that I've heard is, Hey, you know, I'm a salesman and I work for a commission. Or what about a salesman who works on commission? What about a, a car dealer who, who works solely on commission? And if they don't make the sale, if they don't succeed, then they don't make any money. And my answer to that is, first of all, if you were one of the 200 or so players that has a PGA Tour card, you've made it. You've succeeded. You, you have, you've made the sale. And the sale for the PGA Tour is made before Friday afternoon. The PGA Tour is selling the product, which you are contributing to as a player in the field. They have already sold that product. And without you, there's no product. There's nothing that they can sell. So to me, those guys that are out there playing, have their their work has already been sold. And somebody has already made money on it, and they continue to make more money on it. And for them to get no part of that, even though they're putting in two days of work, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. And I think if you... Um, I think there are a number of ways you could pay these guys. And I'm not saying they need to make, you know, $10,000 every week they're out there. Out there. I'm, I'm not saying that they need to get a, uh, when they get their PGA Tour card, I don't think that they need to get a, a certain amount of, of money, like, say, the NFL. I don't think they need to get a, a minimum contract. But I do think that when they go out there and play, that's entertainment. That's work that they've done. And I think that they're deserving i think that they're uh that that they have earned themselves um at, at least something to the point where they're not losing money 
on expenses. And the the other point that everyone makes is, hey, well, they're getting paid by the sponsors. Their club sponsors are paying them um, every week that they go out there and play. And that's true. But the reason for that is the club sponsors, the, the club, let's say Titleist has a guy out there. Well, Titleist is, is getting um, – they're, they're making money on the PGA Tour players they're, um, using their product. And when Titleist can say, hey, we have 180 players uh, on the PGA Tour playing our golf ball or how, however many it is. I just made completely made that number up. But we have this number of players playing our golf ball. Well, that's good for their business. And so they, because of that, they pay those guys. And when the PGA Tour has these guys out there playing, well, that's good for their business. And I think that those players should be compensated. And I think there's a really – I think there are a num- there are so many ways you could do it. It's not even worth discussing, really. The way I, I don't think that it's a, a redistribution. I don't think that you take the purse and you make everybody in the purse give up three percent of their purse for the guys that missed the cut. That's not really what I think. But I think you could. Um, I, I think you could take a portion of concession sales. I think you could take a portion of um, of beer sales, right? Liquor sales. If you, if you buy a beer, a dollar of it's going to go to a guy. Who doesn't make the cut or to that purse of guys that don't make the cut. I also think that there's a potential for the PGA Tour to have a really big revenue stream coming in, a new one. Um, aside from the discovery deal where they just made $2 billion for their product, um, which includes those players that missed the cut, I think that the gambling thing is going to uh, potentially bring a big revenue stream to the PGA Tour. And if that brings a revenue stream to the PGA Tour, I think they they could take a portion of that and pay these guys that are uh, out there competing to make a cut and out there entertaining fans and out there improving the experience of the PGA Tour. Craig, like I say, just uh, one more here before we let you go. And and I think it was if I if if I saw the date correctly, last year mid year you you were sort of on your own on the show. I think it was the first time you subbed for Michael. Um, what was that like? What was it like kind of heading into, all right, Greg, it's your show today, my friend. Good luck. Hey, yep, absolutely. Well, so I, it was actually, um, believe it or not, two years ago, back when the show was one hour for three days a week, uh, I, that, that's when I filled in for the very first time. And it was in the middle of the, in the middle of the, um, in the middle of the season. And Michael had a, a shoot to do at Ferry Point. And at that time, we, Michael didn't have the studio up and running and, and we would do our, our show again. It was nine to 10. So we could get, we had more time to get everything prepared. Now being eight to 10, the, the setup time, the amount of time that it takes to get ready for a two hour show versus a one hour show is a little bit different. So at that time, when it was one hour, we were able to just do it at the academy and our preparation was basically we would go out, we'd hit balls on the range. And a half hour before the show started, we'd go in, set up, and and talk about what we talked about. So back in that, in those days, Michael traveled with uh, with the radio, the all of the stuff. He had a, a carry case, which we still have, but now it's it's pretty much stationary. And he would bring it down to the academy, and we'd set it up. And because one day a week, he would do it at his house. On Tuesdays, he wasn't teaching on Tuesdays. So anyway, this went this. One day was happened to be a Wednesday, and he was going to bring it down, and he was going to be doing a shoot out on the range uh, with a with a um, for basically for this DVD thing that he did, and so he's going to bring it down. I'm going to get everything set up. I was down there, and and I was going to do the show from from our academy, like we always did. It was just going to be me, 
and I was prepared. I was nerve. I was a little nervous. I was excited. I was prepared. Well, Michael gets there, and when when he gets there, he starts talking to me about some of the keys, right? And he's uh, the way that he is. He's talking fast. He's very excited. He's got a lot to do. He's, it, this isn't just about me going on and doing a show. He's got to also prepare for the shoot. So he's kind of going over these things really fast, and all of a sudden he just looks at me with a blank stare. It, mid-sentence, he just stops, and he goes, I forgot the radio, back at his house. It was all, it was, um, all the way back in, in Connecticut, and we're in the Bronx, New York. It, it was probably, it's probably 20 minutes away, but now all of a sudden it's 8 o'clock in the morning, and I got to go from New York to Connecticut at 8 o'clock in the morning to do my first show now at his house alone. And it's a little tight for time. So he is, Michael is in a uh, panic. And the whole time I'm saying to him, just go be calm. I would say, I'll get, I'll make it. I'll make it. Don't worry. We're going to be okay. But I got in the car and I was driving and now I'm finally by myself and I was trying to be calm and I wasn't so calm anymore. I was very, I I was really (laughs) nervous. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And I get there 15 minutes before the show. Um, and, and Michael's wife, Carrie, bless her heart, was able to get everything set up for me before I got there. So I basically got there, put the headset on. I had 15 minutes to talk with our producer about what we were going to talk about. And the feeling I had was probably a feeling that you wouldn't expect. It was a very interesting feeling. I'll never, I will never forget this. And when I, whenever I tell people this, they're so surprised because you would think that, wow, there are so many people listening. I, I'm so nervous. What, what is everybody going to think of me? But when I put the headset on, it's silent and there's no noise. And the feeling I got was like, hello, is, is any, is there anybody there? Is anybody listening to me? And it was a very, very kind of surreal feeling because when you're talking on there and you're doing your intro and there's not a phone call coming in, the producers aren't talking in your ear. They're letting you go. Those moments in between, you know, when you're trying to find your words and you're thinking about what it is that you're going to say, um, there's moments of silence. And it it was just a very interesting feeling. I, I'm sure there were a number of people listening. I'm sure far fewer than if, if Michael was doing the show. I'm sure most people just... uh change the channel but at, at that point when they when they heard that it was me but um but it was a very very interesting sort of feeling of of um loneliness which I, i'm sure is not what you would expect right chris yeah no i mean i, I to be honest with you greg i i do i do understand it because you know it's just me here on the show right, right. so there's there's no one to bounce anything off of if there's no you Right. So right. now it's just you and your thoughts. And then, yeah, it can be a very lonely feeling, very isolating because now yeah. am I going the down silence, the right road the, here? Yeah. That two, that two yeah. or three seconds of silence seems like forever. Right. Yep. So then it's, couldn't it's agree more. yeah, it's a very lonely feeling. I absolutely understand what you're saying. Let our listeners know how can they follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. So on social media, you can get me on Twitter. I'm at the real GFD. No confusion. It, it, it's the real GFD. So there's no, um, you know, it's, it's not an imposter. It's really me. I promise you. Um, so, so that's how you can get me on Twitter. And then, um, if, if you were to say, take a, you know, you want a little bio on me, you want, if you were interested in coming and taking a lesson with me, you could go to michaelbreed.com and in the academy section there, I have a, a profile there. And of course, what you can always do is 
tune into the show uh, on Sirius XM every every morning, Monday through Friday from 8 to 10. And that's Sirius, uh, Sirius 208 and XM 92. It's on PGA Tour Radio. It's uh, it's a great positive listen. You know, Michael's running the show, and I, I help him out as much as I can back there. Um, and through that show, you can call into the show, uh, which that's the number that I don't need to say now, but we, we say it all the time on, on the air. You can call in. We get every all the listeners get involved, um, and and everyone can weigh in on their ideas. And you can also send an email to a new breed of golf, which is the name of the show, at michaelbreed.com. And both Michael and I get to check that email and uh, and and read your input and all your thoughts. Well, Greg, thank you so much again for taking time out of your night to be a part of our show. And I want to give a shout out to our mutual good friend Brian Jacobs for getting us together so that we could have you on the show. Brian's a fantastic absolutely. friend and a great instructor in his own right. So thank you yes, to Brian. So, Greg, take um, care. All the best to you and your family. Hopefully we get the opportunity to have you come back on the show again real soon because it's been a lot of fun spending time. you got dozens of other questions I'd love to get you to weigh in on. So I hope you'll come back and join me sometime. Hey, you let me know anytime you need me. I'm always here, happy to help. And uh, what an honor to be a part of your 200th show. So congratulations on that. I hope I hope to talk to you again soon. All right, Greg. Thank you very much. Take care. All the best to you, Thanks, your family, and to Michael. Look forward to having you back on. Okay. Okay. Talk to you soon. Have a good night. Thanks, Bye. Greg. That is Greg Ducharme. And again, uh, he you can hear him every morning on the Michael Breed Show, A New Breed of Golf. He's fantastic on there. And what what a great, uh, you know, rise he's had up through the, the golf ranks. So can, congratulations to Greg, and uh, and I can't thank him enough for taking time out of his night to be a part of the show. It's uh, it's hopefully he's a guy that uh, we get to say years from now has been on many, many times like Mark Wiebe has. 